Uh, I'm an elder at First Baptist Church here in Haverhill. I've lived in Haverhill since 2003. Uh, I can even say I do have a history here. Uh, I was actually here for the very first service that Camp Grace had uh, back in 2002, I think it was, September of 2002. So uh, I was a member here for several years. I even served on the worship team at one point before we had a drummer. I think I played the djembe. <laughs> um, but uh, it is a tremendous joy to be here Uh, just to worship with you all, to fellowship in the Word with you, to spend time standing in awe of our King uh, together. I'm just thrilled to be here. So thank you for the opportunity, Paul. And um, as he mentioned, I'm also the co-founder of Global Mission Nepal. Uh, We had the joy of leading Paul and uh, Pastor Rick Harrington, who is my pastor at First Baptist, on a training mission this past October, where we got to spend two weeks training and teaching pastors how to prepare and how to preach sermons. Uh, In fact, most of my ministry at First Baptist and in Global Mission Nepal is done in a cross-cultural setting, and it's focused on training pastors, planning churches, and providing theological education to the growing church around the world. Uh, So um, the Lord has been at work. Uh, He's doing a mighty work in Nepal. I'll share about that in a little bit. Um, But it was great to have somebody from this church participating and sharing of the gifts that, that God has given to at the Paul and pouring that into a young and growing and really hungry church. I uh, want to introduce my wife, Amy, who's over here. Um, my children, Jackson, Alessandra, and Addison are downstairs, and uh, they got to enjoy King of Grace too. They were in VBS this past summer and still sing the songs. Um, my two-year-old couldn't really, doesn't really speak that much, but the only thing he could do was sing the beginning of one of the songs that my other two came home with. And he sang that for a long time. So you have a lot lasting impact on my family. Um, as a family, we are preparing to move to Nepal to facilitate the ministry that we currently operate there. Uh, just to give you a little bit of a, um, an explanation, a description of the country, Nepal's a nation of 30 million people. Uh, there's tremendous church growth, and it is desperate for pastoral leadership. Uh, for training theologically. Uh, most of the pastors, in fact, there's a number that I heard of 95% of the pastors in Nepal should really not be pastors. They either have no training or very, very little biblical training whatsoever. Um, as a family, we call ser- called to serve among the Nepalese, where 96% remain committed to Hinduism and Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, and there's 200. 42 unreached people groups that are there out of 253 ethnic groups that are in the country. Uh, Imagine 252 distinct groups within borders that have no representation of Christ or have never even heard the name of Christ yet. And it's a a pretty staggering realization when you're there and you realize that almost nobody around you has ever even heard the name of Jesus. Uh, My hope, especially after preaching from our text today in Revelation 5, is to really display exactly why we are so passionate about seeing Jesus worshipped among these peoples. I do mean peoples. I think ethnic groups, the 253 that are there. Uh, A country that's the size of New England geographically has 253 different groups. So imagine New England with 253 distinct indigenous different people groups. And then imagine on top of that within the size of New England, you've got 109 indigenous languages, most of which do not have any word of God translated into their language. 
And so this is where we as a family are targeting and praying to facilitate a church planting movement. We already have many churches planted, which is exciting. We want to continue to be a catalyst for, for more and, and see this movement multiply uh, throughout Nepal and throughout, throughout South Asia. And so we need your prayers. We need your prayers. We need your encouragement as we work to land in Nepal in the next few months. As you mentioned, by June, we're, we're praying and hoping to be there by June 1st. Uh, we'd certainly love to share more with you after the service. You can see we do have a table out there with some more information about what we're doing and about us. But that being said, uh, let's pray and let's jump into the word this morning. Father God, what a joy, Lord, to be here. Uh, it's a joy to know people that are here, Lord, and it's a joy to share and fellowship with those I've never even met. It's the beauty of your word, Lord, is that it unites us. What the work of Christ has done has been global in its reach. And that I can look out and see my brothers and sisters in you. I can look to Nepal, I can look to China, I can look to even North Korea and know that I have family there. And as I look out now, Lord, I'm so thankful that I have family here, that we can stand in awe of you, worship you, give praise to you, because of what you have done for us. Because of who you are. Lord, as we open up this chapter, Revelation 5, Lord. Lord, I pray that you display your glory. That it would pour forth from your words here, Lord. It's an amazing picture that displays the glory of our King. And I pray, Lord, that hearts here would be amazed that you would be glorified and that our joy would increase knowing that our King shed his blood to purchase us. And the effects of that are amazing to behold as we will read this morning. I pray that in the name of our King and our Savior. Amen. So we're going to start with a, a little bit of a story here before we actually do jump into the text. Um, if you'd like to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5, we'll be there in a minute. So the year is 1716. Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. It is a terrific name. It's a great name. A very wealthy nobleman from Germany stood in this art museum. He's captivated by the painting that's in front of him. And Zinzendorf had grown up with a typical nominal Christian piety of his day, but growing up in the noble class, his concern for really anyone outside of his circle of influence and wealth and prestige was pretty much indifferent. He had no interest in anybody else outside of his social circle. But now at the age of 16, he's standing in front of this painting, and it's of the crucifixion of Christ. And inscribed on this painting was this, All this I have done for you, what? Have you done for me? His heart was ruined at that moment. Changed forever. Soon after, Zinzendorf gives his life to Jesus and is quickly is caught up in a deep and passionate faith in his Savior. And six years later, at the age of 22, a group of Protestant refugees from, a neighboring, from neighboring Moravia come to Zinzendorf's estate in Hernhut, Germany. They're looking to seek asylum. 
and shelter from the persecution that they were receiving. Graciously, the count had compassion and allows them to come in and they move in and they start setting up shops and houses on his estate. It doesn't take long, though, for the group to begin having all types of difficulties and quarrels and they're fighting and there's disagreements. And Zinzendorf joins with the leader of the group and begins to pastor the people. In light of the tension, the two men led the people of the village to cry out to the Lord. And in August of 1727, the Holy Spirit descends in an intense, intense way. And the entire community is completely and totally transformed overnight. It's swept into this spiritual renewal and even led to the formation of a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week prayer meeting. And they met in shifts to make sure that they were continually praying 24 hours a day, every day. It lasted 100 years. Imagine that. Several years later, Zinzendorf meets a black slave from St. Thomas who pleads with him in the village at Hernhut to send missionaries to his homeland. It was said that there were about two to 3,000 slaves on the island that were owned by a British atheist. And the owner had said, no preacher or clergyman will ever stay on this island. I am done with this nonsense about God. They will never talk to us about this God. I'm through with it. And at that moment, the Moravians heard about this island. The mission's bonfire was lit among the 300 people at Hernhut. And two men from the group volunteered to go to St. Thomas to reach the slaves with the gospel. In the eyes of these Moravians, 3,000 slaves from the jungles of Africa had been brought to an island to live and die there without Christ. However, an atheist owner, secluded on an island thousands of miles away, with no possible way for a missionary to penetrate the seemingly impenetrable walls of the island, were not enough, not enough to keep the gospel from spreading among these slaves. They would find a way in because Jesus had died to receive some from those very tribes and peoples. So these two men volunteered. Not just to go to the island as missionaries. They volunteered themselves to be sold into slavery so that they could live and dwell among the 3,000 slaves of St. Thomas. And so they did. They used the money from the sale of themselves to pay for their ship ride into slavery. All to ensure that these slaves had the opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as the ship left the pier at Hamburg, Moravians from Hernhut had gathered along the water's edge to say goodbye to these two young men. And they were in their early 20s, knowing that they would probably never be seen again. This was to be a lifetime of slavery. The families were weeping. They have obvious concerns about the wisdom of such an endeavor like this. And they question, is this really worth what you're doing? The gap widens. The boat is quickly departing. And they're leaving all that's of comfort to them. Their families, their church, their homes, their friends, their belongings. One of the boys with his arms linked through the arm of his fellow, now volunteer slave, raises his hand and shouts across the gap. These are the last words that they believed they would ever hear from them. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. And this became the Moravian motto. As missionary after missionary departed for distant and hostile lands, it became their custom, their motto, 
and their missionary cry. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. This is one of my favorite missionary stories. I love the Moravians. I love their passion, their zeal, their bold and, and fearless commitment to seeing the worth of Jesus Christ be displayed in their willingness to give all for the sake of His name so that He might receive the worship of a people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And it was this morning's text from Revelation chapter 5 that they clung to as their promise, as their hope, their missionary motivation, and their vision for the future. Moravians felt that the worship of Christ was better than their lives. And to that end, that, that this slain lamb that we'll read about in a minute was rewarded with worshipers from every tribe and language and people and nation. They gave their lives to see the proclamation in Revelation 5 become reality. So this sets the stage for our text this morning, which is based in Revelation chapter 5, as I mentioned. We're going to look primarily at verses 9 through 10. My hope this morning is to show you that Jesus' death and resurrection brings ethnic and racial diversity and harmony forever. It is global in its effect. And as we conclude later on, my hope is to connect us, the church, to the mission to see Jesus worshipped by all the peoples of the earth. But I also hope to display just a piece of this stunningly beautiful tapestry that God is weaving together with His children from every tribe and language and people and nation. I want to show you why this matters to us today in our current political and cultural context. So our text, Revelation chapter 5, verses 9-10. through 10. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now in Revelation 5, a dramatic scene is unfolding. The Father is sitting on His throne, and John begins weeping when he realizes that there is absolutely no one in heaven or under heaven or on the earth or anywhere else that is worthy enough to take the scroll out of the Father's hand. In this scroll, we have the unveiling of every promise, every fulfillment, every purpose, every judgment of God from all of history. It's all contained in this scroll. It is the grand revelation of all that we wonder and hope for. And John is weeping. He's weeping because no one is worthy enough to open it and to set into motion the fulfillment of all of God's promises. You can imagine the emotional weight that he's feeling when he sees that all the hope is gone if nobody opens this. Every Christian's hope is gone. And then the great revealing of Jesus Christ happens. He walks up to the Father, takes the scroll from His hand, and the entire cosmos erupts in worship 
and praise and adoration of this One who is called worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals and to set into motion the fulfillment of every one of God's promises. It is an amazing, dramatic picture. I love Revelation chapter 5. Probably one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. But what is also revealed to us is why Jesus is the only worthy one to take and open this scroll. We learn that the cross of Christ is the key central event in all of history. And we see this in the beginning of verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Now let's stop there for a minute. Jesus is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. The first part of this declares the worth of Jesus to be the only one to take the scroll to take control all of history. The declaration is, Jesus is worthy. Let's read the second part of verse 9. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. The declaration has already been made. He is worthy. Why? Why is He worthy? Answer, Jesus' worthiness to take control of all of history by taking the scroll from the Father, opening it and breaking its seals is centered on the fact that He was slain. That He shed His blood. That He died on the cross. If He doesn't die and shed His blood, He is not worthy to take the scroll and put into motion the fulfillment of all the promises of God. So the first two parts of verse 9 show us something immensely important to us as Christians and as humans. The cross is the central defining event in all of history. It is this act that deems Jesus as worthy to be the one to take the scroll. Not only do we see that His death is the defining moment that makes Jesus worthy, but we also see the effect of His death. Look at the third part of verse 9. And by your blood you ransomed people for God. He died as a ransom. That is, He died to purchase a people for God. Purchase them from what? We can look to Galatians 4. You don't have to turn there. I'll I'll read it. It shows us exactly what we were purchased or redeemed from. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. According to this text in Galatians 4, He redeemed us and purchased us out of slavery. The result of that purchase was not only that we were freed from our slavery to sin, which is what all of Romans 6 tells us about, which is incredible and amazing in and of itself, but He also made us children of God. He died to adopt us into the family of God. He is transforming our very DNA into that of Jesus Christ, the Son of God Himself. It's amazing. It's amazing. So we look at the first half of our text in Revelation, uh, verse 9, 
we can see that Jesus is deemed as the one who is worthy to take complete control over all of history in the fulfillment of God's promises and judgments. Why? Because through His death on the cross, He ransomed, He redeemed, He purchased a people for God. He not only ransomed them out of slavery to sin, but He made them His very sons and daughters. And not only did He ransom them and make them His very own sons and daughters, but He also made them kings and priests who will reign with Christ forever. We see that in the second part of verse 10. Free from slavery, adopted as sons and daughters, made kings and priests. That is the effect of Jesus' death and resurrection. We see an incomprehensible significance in the work of Jesus. But we also see an incomprehensible cost. The death of the Son of God. This is what makes Jesus worthy in verses 9-10. through He laid down His life willingly for you and for me to be ransomed out of slavery, to be adopted into the family of God. And if that weren't enough, He also made us kings and priests to co-rule with Christ one day forever. And it cost the Father His very own Son to accomplish this task. But to this point, we've left out a very important piece of the puzzle. The who. Who did Jesus ransom for God? For whom did Jesus die? We find the answer to this question in the first part of verse 10. Jesus died to ransom a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. He died so that He would ransom a people for God from every culture, every race, every ethnicity, every people group, and every nation on the face of the earth. Amen. Amen. His death was global in its reach. It was not just for one country. It was not just for one group of people or just Israel or just America. We see in this text in verse 9 through, 9 through 10 that Christ's death, death and resurrection, His act of redemption reaches every people group, every ethnic group, every race on the face of the earth. In Nepal, uh, Hinduism It's the dominant religion of the country. 86% of the country adheres to the Hindu faith. But inherent in this system of belief is is a system of predetermined worth. Namely, castes. Many of you may may have heard of the caste system. It is one of the evilest systems of societal oppression that can be imagined. You can be born into levels of high affluence, high worth, and high societal status. These people are called Brahmins and are made up of priests and holy men. Or you can be born into absolute poverty under complete isolation and oppression simply because you were born with this designation. These are the lowest castes and are called shudras or dalits. Most people have heard of dalits. 
which literally means untouchable. These are made up of the lowest that society can contain. Uh, these untouchables are the bottom dwellers in society. They literally cannot be touched by higher castes. There's a story that came out about 18 months ago of a girl from a low caste. She was a Dalit. Her shadow fell on somebody from a higher caste. And they beat her nearly to death because her shadow touched him. That's what we're talking about here. Your, your caste is typically your tribe. And if you are among the Chetri of Nepal, which we had many Chetri in, our, in our, teaching, our trainings, for example, you are high caste. You are government, military, or law enforcement. If you are a Shudra, which we also had many within our trainings who are Shudras, you are the lowest of the low, who are given the worst jobs in the worst areas. You may not be able to get an apartment or a job. If you are given a job, it's the worst of the worst. This is where you get the word outcast. You are so low that you are outside of the caste system. Your access to life's necessities and your future are determined by the caste that you are in. And this is inherent in the entirety of Hinduism. And it is nearly impossible to break out of it. It is nearly impossible to move up in the caste system, but you can certainly be moved down. However, your caste determines your worth, and this is broken down into the people groups in Nepal. If you are a high caste and you marry somebody in a lower caste, you are immediately a low caste person, and you are shunned and isolated. This is where the beauty of Christianity and the message of the gospel comes to life. And it is global in its effect, and it is the reason why I believe that Christianity is spreading throughout Hindu regions. Jesus came to die. God's very Son, the radiance of the glory of God and the imprint of the very nature of God, God Himself comes to earth to die, not just for those in high castes, not just for those in affluent nations or secular nations or democratic nations or communist nations, but comes to die to redeem those from every single tribe and nation and people and language on the face of the earth. No person or tribe is too low. No nation or language is too lofty. The universal message is the same. All remain under the wrath of God and are in desperate need of a Savior. A Redeemer. And that Savior and that Redeemer came to die as a ransom so that some from every tribe and language and people and nation will be redeemed. And not only redeemed, but made to be a child of God that will one day reign as a co-heir with Christ Himself. Every one of them made in the image of God. And now with the ability to become a member of the family of God. And will enjoy an eternity of life, joy, and satisfaction that the Son of God Himself enjoys forever, unending. This is amazing. It's amazing. And the whole world needs to hear it. Jesus shed His blood for it. 
And that's why we've dedicated our lives as a family to see the peoples of South Asia hear this message, know this King, and live within the hope that we have been adopted as children of God. In northern India, 70% of the Christian population is untouchables. In Nepal, it's 60%. 60% of the Christian population are low caste. And now, they not only face oppression and near total exclusion from society because of their caste, but Christian untouchables now face even more oppression. The Hindu system has made the lowest caste imaginable now even lower because of Christ. And it will be remarkable on that day when the lowest of low will be raised with Christ to reign as a royal priesthood and kings forever. What hope is offered to a people who not only have no earthly hope, but according to their Hindu faith, have no heavenly hope either. As of today, there are 16,560 distinct people groups, ethno-linguistic distinct people groups in the world. 6,700 of those are considered unreached by this news. Just over 3 billion people. 7 billion people in the world. 3 billion of them are considered unreached by the Gospel. A missionary once said, the good news is only good if it reaches them in time. And millions are perishing without this Gospel and stepping into an eternity without Christ. But even more than this is the disturbing fact that 6,700 people groups, 3 billion people within those groups do not worship Jesus as King and Lord and Savior. Groups of whom Jesus died and shed His blood to purchase a people for God from. And does He not deserve the worship of each and every one of them? I can't help but draw out the racial implications here from a text like this. We're in a turning point here in the United States. The um, 1960s brought a revolution in the civil rights movement when hatred of Af- African Americans and, and some other groups as well was the norm, not just in the South, but in the North as well. And for 200 years in this country, slavery and oppression and hatred simply because of a person's skin color was different. It was a normal way of life. This type of of animosity and hatred because of this. And it continues in many places today, despite enormous progress in the cause of civil rights. Now in 2017, racial tensions are mounting once again and have been for the last couple of years especially. As many in the black community and many within the white community are rising up against racial inequality on various levels, and for good reason too. And sadly, the church at large has been silent on the issue, and in the past 200 years has an awful record of participating in and even theologically justifying racism rather than rallying against it. And even more, when I've observed you know, the church, and I mean the capital C church, even my own friends and, and family, 
speak with such indifference and vitriolic language towards those of different races and ethnicities makes me ashamed sometimes of how the church has missed the fact that Jesus Christ died for every race. White, brown, red, yellow, every other shade in between so that they can be a redeemed people for God. Without exclusion due to any cultural or ethnic or racial distinction. Christ shed His blood for every race. And the church of all people and institutions should be at the forefront of the battle for racial and ethnic diversity and equality because every one of those from a different race are not only made in the image of God, but the same blood of Christ redeemed them and made them children of God. And not only that, according to our text here, Christ made us a ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And what else has He done? Look at the second part of verse 10. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. He has made us kings and priests. That is, co-rulers and worshipers that will reign together in cultural, ethnic, and racial diversity that completely reflects the beauty, diversity, and infinite characteristics and colorfulness and creativity of our Creator. And we should rejoice at this spectrum of diversity. It reflects the greatness of our King to have worshipers not just from one race and one ethnicity, but from the tens of thousands that have existed since the beginning of time. To see Christ praised and worshipped in thousands of different languages accompanied by thousands of musical instruments as we got to see in Nepal. They have their own songs that they've written in their own heart language. To enjoy fellowship with believers around cultural foods, again, as we got to eat a lot of in Nepal. All eaten with thanksgiving to the same Lord. To observe moments of remembrance of Christ's work on the cross with different traditions. All of these display the glory of God in mighty ways by displaying His infinite characteristics and beauty. It's on display. Total and complete diversity and total and complete unity as children under one Father. And we should fight to see this now. In our hearts, in our churches, in our politics, in our everyday lives because Christ died to redeem a racially and ethnically diverse kingdom of priests that will reign together forever. The implications for us as Christians, as church, are huge. It shapes who we are and the mission that we are on. It shapes how we make disciples. It should shape how we spend our resources or where we send our missionaries. God intends to have a people, not just from three or four or 400 ethnic groups, but from all ethnic groups. Just look at the scope of the words used in this text. People, tribe, language, and nation. 
This covers the whole range of ethnic diversity on our planet. There is no race, ethnicity, or nation, or language who is outside of the effect of Jesus' death. So Christian, I challenge you. Check your heart towards those of a different race and ethnicity. We must do this. Do you cringe when a foreigner or a Muslim or a Hindu or a Sikh moves into your neighborhood? Or do you wonder and long to see the revealing of whom God has redeemed from among them? Do you look at them and think, Lord, are they yours? Help me to show them their king. Do you feel love towards them as created in the image of God or do you feel contempt towards them? We must beware of our ethnic jokes and beware of our Facebook posts and our prejudices against foreigners and other races and other religions. Beware of our animosity towards those who come into our towns and cities from different lands. For our God is sovereign over all of them. And it is our God who has brought them. It is our God who is the mover of peoples. No matter whether they arrive here legally or illegally. And it is our God who gave his son's life in order to redeem from each and every one of those groups of people and nations and race and languages to be his children and to reign as kings and priests with Christ forever. Do not miss the diverse beauty and universality of Jesus' work because of ethnic, racial, political, or nationalistic prejudices. Oh, it's so easy for us to focus on those things instead of looking at the tapestry that God has woven. Scriptures tell us that we are sojourners and exiles whose citizenship is in heaven before we are citizens of this land. And traveling with us as sojourners are people from every tribe and language and people and nation that are all going to the same eternal kingdom that we are and will be worshiping and co-reigning with the same king that we will be. We will be unified in Christ, in truth, in love, woven together as family by the blood of Jesus. There will be no levels of race, no division of ethnicities, no castes. We'll be brothers and sisters, children of our God, ruling and worshiping side by side with no tension because of our ethnic differences. It is those differences that bring glory to our God because of the sheer magnitude of His finished work. And those differences tell the story of an infinite God. But it will bring glory when we see the global effect of the death of Jesus. Several months ago, we were able to enjoy the 2016 Summer Olympics. And the opening and closing ceremonies are my favorite thing to watch in the Olympics. Sure, I love the sports too, but 
I love the opening and closing ceremonies. The parade of nations. I don't know if anybody here got to watch it. On display are 207 countries gathered together, unified by the glory of their athleticism and national pride. It really is an incredible display of, of our vibrant, diverse planet. It really is. Thousands of people gathered from all other countries of the world, marching with their flags and their unique cultural dress, displaying a spectrum of colors between their skin and their hair and their clothing and their flags. It's, it's a beautiful display. I love that part of the Olympics. It's a joyous celebration. It really is a beautiful celebration. But it isn't entirely accurate. I mean, 207 countries gathering together is nothing to shrug at. It doesn't happen very often. However, it's easy to look at that display and think that every nation in the world is displayed there. But when the Bible speaks of every tribe and language and people and nation, it's not referring to the 207 geopolitical nations that we see on display in the parade of nations. That's not what this is talking about. It's referring to every individual, distinct, unique, ethno ethnic group on the face of the world. Don't think 200. Think 20,000. And those are the nations that exist today. As I mentioned earlier, it's actually 16,000. That does not include the thousands that came before us. Imagine that parade of nations represented by a people from 16,000 different nations. Just try to picture that. What we read in Revelation 5, the revelation of Jesus as the worthy one, the worth of Jesus because He shed His blood, the redemption declared of a people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation, these are all centered on one thing. The proclamation of the finished work of Jesus Christ. What you read in verses 9-10 through 10 is the proclamation. making a declaration of what Jesus accomplished. Two chapters later, in Revelation chapter 7, you can turn there in your Bibles. We finally see the presentation of the finished work. The presentation of the reward of Jesus' death and resurrection. We see the picture of all that the Moravians longed to see and why they would give their lives to see representation from every tribe, language, people, and nation. This is what all of our pioneer missionary heroes longed for. You had pictures of Adoniram and Ann Judson on the wall. This is what they longed for. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9-12. through 12. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing, 
and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. We sang about this this morning. By Your blood I come, welcomed as Your own, into the arms of majesty. We sang those words this morning. One day, a great multitude will gather. Imagine that parade of nations represented by a people from 16,000 or 20,000 nations that will be made up of a number that no one can number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And that great multitude will not be gathered together to celebrate their athleticism or their national pride. No, they will be gathered together in a stunning display of diversity like no one has ever seen at any Olympic gathering or any other world gathering. They will be joined together to display the glory and the greatness of our God. And they will be singing in in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They will not be singing of their strength or endurance. They will not be singing of their own glory and accomplishments. They will not be carrying the flag of their nation and nationalistic pride. They will be singing of the glory of Jesus Christ who died and through His blood purchased them for God from every one of their tribes, nations, peoples, and languages. But I want to point something out to you from this text. Has it ever occurred to you that you are in this picture? There's not really any other place that you can look in the Bible and read a description and say, oh, that's me right there. I'm over here. That's me in this picture. In this verse in Revelation 7, there you are. And imagine next to you, around you, Tens of thousands, the millions of people with a diversity like you've never believed, never seen. All crying out to your Father. You're in this picture if you believe in Christ. Every ministry you do here, every missionary you support and send, every prayer, every disciple that you make is to one end. To see Jesus Christ worshipped by a people from every tribe and nation and people and language. And every ministry effort, every disciple you make is to the end that this great multitude that you see in Revelation 7 becomes reality. Everything you do as a church should have this vision in mind, seeing this become reality. aim of missions is to see the gladness of the peoples of the world and the greatness of our God. John Piper said that in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. That sentence, really that whole paragraph, changed my life. The aim of missions is to see the gladness of the peoples of the world and the greatness of our God. Isn't that what you see here? Do you hear the gladness? Do you see the worship? Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, racism and ethnocentrism are destroyed for a better and eternal reality. 
blood-bought ethnic and racial diversity and harmony, unified in truth and in love, worshiping Christ and co-reigning with him together forever. This is our heart as we go to Nepal. This is what our heart beats for. And as John Piper describes, and I'll close with this, it is all aiming at the all-satisfying, everlasting, God-centered, Christ-exalting experience of many-colored, many-cultured worship and aroma that delights the heart of God. Let's pray. Father, this revelation of the lion and the lamb, the worthy one, Jesus Christ, our King, is a magnificent display of your glory, of your love, of your grace, of your mercy, that you would purchase us, that you would redeem us, that you would make us your children, and that you would give us a place to co-rule, to enjoy you and to worship you forever. It's beyond what our minds can comprehend, Lord, but I pray for the rest of our lives that we try to. And our hearts are in tune with that reality. And that every ministry here at King of Grace and the other churches around Haverhill and New England and to the ends of the earth, Lord, are gathered together in worship of this King, but are aiming to see the gladness of the peoples of the world in your greatness. Oh Lord, I pray the hearts here would be stirred in affection for you, amazed at your work, amazed at what you have done and accomplished, and amazed that even the lowest of low will be made high in Christ. What mercy, what grace, what love, what a king. Thank you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen.